welcome to Summer Majors. Yeah! Oh yeah, the sun's out, the beaches are full, and we're ready to get out there with our fucking hot, glistening bods. And just fucking slay, brah. Making cocktails of suntan oil and booty sweat. Carve up that surf, ya. Yeah. Throwing coconuts at the homeless. <laughs> wait, excuse me? <laughs> Lighting it's... the homeless on fire? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is supposed to be a very positive, fun bit about the joys, the joys of the season of summer. And now you're talking about murdering the people that our horrible capitalist nation hates the most? Yeah. Oh. That's how we supply the beach bonfires, oh, so that God. they can become one with summer. Oh, God. I'm... Listen, Tom, I'd like I'm... you to read a couple books by my boy Jeff Sessions. Oh. Oh, God. I Just would kidding. literally rather do anything else. Oh, fuck. I would, rather, I would rather swim in a pool full of hot coffee, Liam. That actually sounds pretty cool. Does it? You'd smell like coffee. And what if you had to go underwater? Would it, would it hurt to open your eyes underwater in coffee water? I mean, yes. it's just water, right? It's water with bean, with, with bean. bean detritus in it. Yeah, I suppose so. This bit's really taken a, a, a turn, huh? Kind of out of left field. I do that when I bring up throwing coconuts at the homeless. A thing I don't do. Media majors does not support hurting the homeless. We support supporting the homeless. Uh, on uh, contrary to what your conservative dad says, they're not all junkies looking for a score. Give them money if you can afford it. This is Media Majors, a storytelling podcast, usually about media, generally about media. Sometimes yeah. we kind of circle a little bit, but I think it's fun. Yeah. My name's Liam Sr. My stories pertain to that of show business, TVs, movies, glitz, glamour, stars aplenty. And my stories, I'm Tom Lockney, and my stories are germane to the topics of Video James and Video Jim, Video Jim, Video and, Jim, and general internet culture. And Liam, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell the story about uh, uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper and how he got into acting. No, I'm kidding. I'm gonna tell part two of my Manson story. This is our very first two-parter. We should definitely preface this because I'm I'm yeah. Let me let me uh. Let me say a couple of things. So yeah, um, I call it a Manson story. It, we're not going to be focusing on him. We're going to be focused on Sharon. Uh, today we'll be focusing on the relationship between uh, actress Sharon Tate and uh, filmmaker Roman Polanski, who uh, were involved with the Cielo House murders of 1969 from last week's story. Uh, and I'm a very happy-go-lucky dude, and I try to be, you know, a real goofball. This one is probably the darkest story I've told on this podcast, so trigger warnings. We've got anti-Semitism. We've got child abuse. We've got statutory rape. We've got violence. We've got violence against women, violence against pregnant women, and also uh, emotional abuse, and I think that's it. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Don't worry, uh, everybody. If, if you still want to listen to something, um, but not that, my story is very happy. You can check for the time codes in the description of the podcast if you would awesome. like to skip Liam's story. Uh, so, yeah. Want to hear a doomed love story? Well, I'm gonna. Part one. A star is born. Sharon Tate was born in 1943 in Dallas, Texas, the eldest daughter of three. Uh, to Colonel Paul James Tate, a U.S. Army officer, and his wife, Doris Gwendolyn. Tate won the Miss Tiny Todd of Dallas pageant, but her parents had no show business ambitions for their daughter, 
which at that time, probably a good thing. Yeah. She was an army brat and by age 16 had lived in six different cities. She found it hard to maintain friendships and relate to people, and her family would describe her as shy and lacking in self-confidence. But unfortunately, this will be kind of a recurring theme in Sharon's life as authority figures, especially men, not taking her very seriously. A woman not being taken seriously by men during the mid-1900s? Unheard of! Crazy, isn't it? All the family relocated to Verona, and Tate learned that she had kind of become a local celebrity. Uh, because they published a photograph of her in a bathing suit on the cover of the military newspaper Stars and Stripes. With her consent? I don't, well, I don't think they even asked. I think they just published a picture of her. God. (sighs) So she became interested in acting, and during the filming of Adventures of a Young Man, which was being made nearby and starred Paul Newman, Susan Strasberg, and Richard Boehmer, they got part, she got a part as a film extra. Bamer noticed Tate in the crowd, introduced himself, and the two dated during the production of the film, and Bamer encouraged her to pursue a film career. Bamer, I hardly know her! Wonderful. Oh, God. In 61, she was Pat Boone's uh, singer. She was like a singer for Pat Boone's band and made her first television uh, appearance in a special he made in Venice. In 62, Tate moved to L.A. Uh, She contacted Bamer's agent, Harold Gefsky. Gefsky agreed to work with her and secured her some television and ma- uh, magazine ads. She got some small parts, but she found that her reps were difficult to work with, and they didn't want the audience to see her till she was ready, was what she kind of thought. So she was like, screw that. Uh, in 1964, she met Jay Sebring, a former sailor who had established himself as a leading hairstylist in Hollywood. They sort of went out, but he proposed to her, and she didn't accept because she wanted to pursue acting. And they, and he took it very well, and they became were friends for the best friends for the rest of their lives together. Wow, that's like basically the best outcome you can have from a rejected proposal. So she also worked with this guy named Ransohoff, and in '65, Ransohoff finally gave Tate her first major role in a motion picture called *The Eye of the Devil*, which co-starred David Niven, pretty big, pretty big get at the time. Uh, Tate played Odile, a witch who exerts a mysterious power over a landover, landowner played by Niven. She didn't have a lot of lines, but they actually it was uh, her performance was considered crucial to the film, and she was sort of the one who was required to set the ethereal, spooky tone, and and she pulled that off because she was you know she she used that sense of aloofness, that sense of otherness to kind of. Hmm work her magic filming was in london she ended up living there and it was around that time that she met roman polanski part two a jewish star is born (laughs) rajmund roman theory polanski born august 18th 1933 is a french polish film director his polish jewish parents moved back to poland in 1937 when he was four hey tom history lesson what happens in poland in the late 30s they create the very first automobile oh so close the nazis invade yeah it's the beginning of the third reich a lot of people confuse it with the beginning of the automotive industry so yeah (laughs) from 39 to 45 polanski spent the next uh spent those years of his childhood on his own trying to survive the ongoing holocaust his mother was in auschwitz and his dad was in a different internment camp fuck and he was able to just survive. He didn't get found out. 
he stayed with a Roman Catholic family for a couple of years, but he just like bounced around. Unfortunately, his mother passed in Auschwitz, but his father managed to survive, and after the war, they were reunited. Polanski based the look of Faye Dunaway's character from Chinatown on his mother in her honor. Wow. From ages 6 to 11, Roman Polanski was a Jew in Poland trying not to be murdered by Nazis. Jesus Christ. And this wasn't something just like, oh, I bet, it, you know, like, uh, uh, Oliver Twist, like, that's just how it was. Like, no, this was dire situations. Yeah, yeah, like, literally, like, every day it was like, I have to not get caught. I have to not get caught and somehow get, like, food and shit. And I have, like, the... the, And I have to not get caught because if the people who are with me are found out for hiding me, we all get... Yeah. Murdered. Fuck, God. So after, um, he was always obsessed with film, and after the Holocaust was over, he decided to pursue that. He won his first Oscar when he was 29 for his movie Knife and Water, a Polish drama. He won for Best Foreign Film. And uh, after that, he moved to Paris to pursue filmmaking. Uh, he, I mean, he went to film school in Poland and stuff and did really well there. And then he made a couple movies, won, won an Academy Award. He goes to Paris to beca- get a film career. And the French film industry, super xenophobic, super unwilling to support a foreign, foreign filmmaker. This was France in the 60s. So he mm-hmm. was like, fuck this. He went to England and he makes two movies, Cul-de-sac in 66 and The Fearless Vampire Killers in 67. Fearless Vampire Killers stars Sharon Tate, who had to like really push for the role because he wanted a redhead. And she had wore a wig the whole time. Hmm. But eventually he was like, no, we'll let, we, the, she's the perfect choice for this role. I've seen the F- Fearless Vampire Killers. It's like a very silly parody of vampire movies. Hmm. And it's also known as Pardon Me, But Your Teeth Are Stuck in My Neck. <laughs> That's fucking good. That's a good it's ass title. It's not a great movie, but it was. it's pretty fun. And it's the thing is, it's directed by Roman Polanski. So it's, it's directed very well. Part three, Tate roaming around no more. I see. I see that that you and I have decided to adopt this chapter pun thing, and I'm very here for it. I mean, I peaked with the Jewish star is born. So both Tate and Polanski have a, in separate interviews agreed that they weren't really impressed with the other when they first met. So Ransahoff was co-producing Vampire Killers, and he didn't even want Tate, who he represented, to be in the movie. But then uh, Polanski was like, "No, no, she's good. We, she can wear a, re- a red wig. It's fine." As filming went on, Polanski kept being like, you're incredible. How are you not, like, a huge superstar? Like, you're inc- insanely talented. And this really helped her grow as an actor, and she really, like, felt like she could actually pursue this as a craft now. And, and, and you know, Polanski really helped her break out of her shell. And they got very close. As the film progressed, you know, they got very close, and she was still very close with Jay Sebring, even though they weren't really together anymore. And he was like, I really like to meet him. He flies to London. He meets him, and uh, they. And he was like, No, I, I, you should, you should date him. It's clear that you two have something. And he still remained to be her closest friend and confidant. So Tate returned to the U.S. to film some movies, and Polanski stayed in London, but they stayed together and stayed in touch. Polanski was a, a philanderer, however, and uh, cheated on her all the time. Oh. Yeah, I was waiting for I was waiting for it to start to the cracks to start to form. So, 1967 was like the year that Sharon Tate happened. Uh, there was an article about her in Playboy that said that, including six nude or partially nude photographs taken by Polanski 
during uh, Fearless Vampire Killers. And they're also trying to make a movie called Valley of the Dolls. Valley of the Dolls is this book. It's about women in Hollywood who are marginalized. Sharon Tate really connected with this, with the idea of it. But she like didn't really feel super connected to the book or the script. But she gets cast alongside Patty Duke, Barbara Parkins, and Judy Garland. The director was awful to the three of them, and it, this apparently like really, really, really got to Tate. I mean, like a media media major story staple, male director, kind of a piece of shit. Patty Duke was quoted as saying that he continually treated Tate like an imbecile, which she was definitely not, and she was very in tuned and sensitive to this treatment. The director would like make remarks about Tate to Polanski, and even Polanski was like, "Can you not talk about my girlfriend like that?" That's to me? so. Hey, dude. Hey, bruh. Dude, I think your girlfriend blows. Kind of no, no, res- it was it was creepier. It's like, oh man, few women are able to show that amount of vulnerability. And he was like, Ugh. that is my girlfriend you were talking about. Listen, I'm Roman Polanski, one of the biggest creeps in the world, and I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, unfortunately, all three films flopped. Vampires was recut by producers for U.S. audiences and was panned. Uh, Devil Devil in the Eye was panned. Tate's performance reviews were boiled down to the fact that she appeared nude. Oh, uh, God. Although she really connected with her character in Valley of the Dolls, Valley of the Dolls did not do very well. It has later become sort of a cult film, and she sort of became a sex symbol while trying to become just an actress. Uh, fucking, like, male critics, God. Ugh. And then afterwards, she was like, fine, I can try, I, I just want to parlay this into maybe doing, like, romantic comedies and stuff, because I don't really see myself as, as a Shakespearean actress. In 67, Tate and Polanski returned to London. This is later 67. And they were the frequent subjects of newspapers and magazine articles. Tate was depicted as being untraditional and modern. You know, that they lived together before they got married. She had her own source of income. She didn't fully rely on Roman. She'd go out with her friends on her own. People were like, who is this modern woman? They were married in Chelsea, London on January 20th, 1968, with a lot of publicity. Part four, the love nest. Tate kind of wanted a more traditional marriage. Polanski kind of told her that, like, you knew from the beginning, I, like, he had a lot of infidelity, and she was sort of okay with it because, like, they both had promised not to try to change the other. The thing is, because I've listened, I've, I've read a lot and I listened, there's a great podcast series that really goes in depth to the whole story called on You Must Remember This, but it focuses a lot more on Charles Manson. Um, so that's why I, I think this is a little different. Uh, but basically from what I can gather was that she just, it's not that she like wanted him to change, but was also just very like, I'm my own person. Like I'm, I have agency over me I, I do the things I want to do, you know. She wanted him to change, but was unwilling to be the, the actor or, like, the catalyst of that change, maybe? She confided to her friends that she hoped he would eventually change. Okay. So I think it was more of a thing of, like, Roman's Roman, you don't choose who you love. It, it was, it was, it's very sad. She's quoted as saying, we have a good re- arrangement. Roman lies to me and I pretend to believe him. Yeah, that sounds like a healthy relationship. <laughs> So the couple returned to L.A. and quickly became part of the big social group at the time of Young Hollywood. So it was Warren Beatty, Jacqueline Bissett, Joan Collins, Mia Farrow, Jane Fonda, Peter Fonda, Steve McQueen, Peter Sellers, even older film stars like Yul Brenner, Henry Fonda, Kirk Douglas, musicians like Jim Morrison and the Mamas and the Papas, and recording producer Terry Melcher and his girlfriend, Candace Bergen. There should, there must be a Mamas and Papas 
queer cover band called the Mommies and the Daddies. Oh, fuck. That would be so good. That would actually dude, dude, be awesome. With a, with a drag queen playing Mama Holy Cass. Holy fucking shit. Oh, my God. Daddy Cass, the drag queen of Mama Cass. Oh, my God. <laughs> We just we just conceptually created like the best cover band that's ever existed. TM 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 TM. So, one of their close friends was record producer Terry Melcher and Candace Bergen. Do you remember those names from last week? Yes, yes, I do. Polanski Circle and friends included a couple of people people he uh, went to school with in Poland, and they actually are kind of important to the story. One guy's name is Wojciech Frykowski. And Frykowski's girlfriend, coffee heiress Abigail Folger. So Tate and Polanski had lived in the Chateau Marmont Hotel in L.A., very famous hotel, until they arranged to lease Patty Duke's home in Beverly Hills. The Polanski house was full of strangers, and Tate regarded the casual atmosphere as part of the free spirit of the times. She didn't mind when people just kind of came into her house, and her motto was live and let live. So she was also, I think she might have been a little bit into, like, the open hippie dippiness of the 60s, too. Which I think is why she was able to maintain a relationship with Polanski, even though he's cheating on her. So in the summer of 68, Tate began her next film, The Wrecking Crew. And the only reason I bring this up is that she performed her own stunts and was taught martial arts by Bruce Lee. How fucking dope is that? Sharon Tate rules. There is a 90% chance that even while pregnant, Sharon Tate could beat my ass like a fool. So she became pregnant near the end of 68, and on February 15th, 1969, she and Polanski moved to 10050 Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon. The house was occupied by Melcher and Candace until Melcher moved and offered them the house. They had visited it several times, and Tate was thrilled to learn it was available and referred to it as her love house. Did, question, did Melcher at any point warn them? No. Fuck. Well, think about it, because he... You know, he assumes, oh, that Manson guy wants me. He's got beef with me. He's got beef with me. He'll show up to their house, see that I'm not there, and then he won't be able to find me. Okay. Oh, God. Ah, that sucks. In 69, Polanski had to shoot a movie in in London that would take a while, and because of that, and because Sharon didn't really want to be on her own that much, uh, Frykowski and Folger moved into the house as well. So the four, the two couples lived there, and then mm-hmm. J. Sebring was over, like, all the time. Part five, no pun title, because it's about to get fucked. Yeah. She returned to London from visiting Polanski to Los Angeles on July 20th. Polanski was supposed to come back in August, so he, he asked Frykowski and Folger to just, he was basically like, do you want us to keep crashing the house? Yeah, stay, keep sharing company. On August 8th, 1969, Tate was two weeks from giving birth. She entertained two friends two actresses for lunch at her home. She mentioned she was disappointed that Polanski was uh, returning later than he had promised just because of, you know, filming stuff. And then her younger sister, Deborah, also called her. And then Deborah and Patty, her sisters, asked if they could come over to spend the night and Tate declined, saying, we'll do it another time. Uh, later that evening, her and Jay went out to uh, a restaurant, El Coyote. Uh, for people who don't, for people who don't speak Spanish, that is the coyote. The coyote. <laughs> So, a little after midnight, the four members of the Manson family show up. They came in. They had knives. They tied everybody. They had knives, and they just fuck laid waste. God damn it. Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring tried to dismay them, and they really, really used their wits and their humanity 
to to try to like to talk get these people these to people leave, down to talk to and... these people and and they and like it had had these people not been doing drugs all day in the desert having sex with charles manson i mean being brainwashed out of their minds by one of the most evil men alive right now so yeah all four all five people in the house were murdered jc bring folger sharon tate her child and uh frakowski of the four perpetrators that did it they are either dead or in jail good uh those alive tried to parole every year and have been consistently shot down good every single time yeah they can fucking rot in prison forever i have to say it sounds bad it was super fun to watch squeaky from get shut down yet another time and cry as she had to go back to jail good mm-hmm and Squeaky From was one of the most notorious of the Manson killer. I, I, I'm pretty sure she was part of this, but she like she was a big player in this. Yeah. To the point of where a lot of people were like, you're enjoying this and you're not actually brainwashed. So curiosity about the victims led to the re-release of Tate's films, and they achieved greater popularity this time. Newspapers began to speculate motives for the murder. Uh, a lot of people thought that it was because Tate was involved with satanic rituals, but then it turned oh, out those God. were photo shoots from the... Um, eye of the devil a movie she had been in so people were dumb even from the start yeah so on wednesday august 13th a roman polanski was questioned was flown back in and questioned and cleared um they they found who it was pretty quickly and uh they say that polanski was was strangely beyond not strangely but like he, although he cheated on a lot he, he was beyond devastated on wednesday august 13th tate was interred in the holy cross cemetery of culver city california with her son paul richard polanski named after named post uh posthumously for both tate and Roman, uh, polanski's fathers in her arms sebring's funeral took place three hours later the same day so that people could attend both funerals her sisters patty and doris have done a lot of work to preserve her legacy to make sure the manson family has stayed in jail and off any sound waves and stuff so the Good. music has been released and all that but the thing is the thing that i really liked is that sharon was was buried with her son and in in her arms and uh she was able to finally be at peace i guess it would have been nice if she got to live with her son but fortunately that's not where our story stops oh, part God. six yeah an equal and opposite reaction yeah yeah Life magazine devoted a lengthy article to the murders and featured photographs of the crime scenes. Polanski was interviewed for the article and allowed himself to be photographed at the entrance of the house next to the front door with the word pig written in his wife's blood still visible. Man, Liam, you were you were not kidding. This one's a just a real bummer. He was widely criticized for his actions, but he argued that he wanted to know it was responsible and was willing to shock the magazine's readers in hope that mm. someone would come forward with information. You, you know what you know what I'll say there's always a reason there's never an excuse you know Polanski later stated that in the months following he suspected various friends and associates and he was incredibly paranoid until the killers were arrested a lot of people were having uh, security systems installed in their homes and a lot of people were just straight up moving out of California yeah cuz the fucking cuz this cuz this fucking cult leader is just like hey you people Go kill, go, go kill this group for me. I would get the, I would fucking, I, I probably wouldn't move because I couldn't afford to move probably, but I would fucking get the fuck out and stay with some family out of state. Fuck, man. And then 
Polanski bounced back. He made a, a couple more movies, including 1974's Chinatown, won him 11 Oscars, and submit, uh, cemented him as one of the greatest Hollywood storytellers of all time. Chinatown is a fucking fantastic movie. And then, in 1977, Polanski... Alright, I'm gonna say this. If you It's coming. Hey, Grown Crawford, you done? <coughs> yes. Hey, Philip Seymour Kaufman, you need you need a second? <laughs> Alright, go go ahead. Hey, if you've been sticking with us through this story and, and you've kinda had it, skip over to skip over to Tom's. Yeah. Just skip over to Tom's. And God bless you. And God bless you. Oh. So in 1977, Polanski was arrested and charged with five offenses against Samantha Gailey, a 13-year-old girl that he assaulted. A lot of risk arrested for, for, I think it's now considered statutory offense number two, which is engaging. It's like not uh, engaging with a minor. Uh, at his her- arraignment, Polanski pleaded not guilty to all charges, but later accepted a plea bargain whose terms included dismissal of the five initial charges in exchange for a guilty plea to the lesser charge of engaging in unlawful sexual intercourse. So according to Samantha, Polanski had asked her mother, a television actress and model, if he could photograph the girl as part of his work for a French edition of Vogue. Polanski had been invited to guests edit. Her mother allowed a private photo shoot. She felt uncomfortable. This was a, another photo shoot. Took you know she posed topless for Polanski, but nothing happened. Uh, they had agreed for another photo shoot at Jack Nicholson's house. Things got weird. Angelica Houston walked in and almost caught everything. Weird is maybe an understatement. And he raped Samantha and was almost caught by Angelica Houston, but was able to cover it up. He was arrested and you know under this plea agreement. The court ordered Polanski to report to a state prison for a 90-day psychiatric evaluation, uh, but he was granted a stay so he can complete his project. Oh, thank God. Thank God we let this child rapist go so he could complete his project because that's so fucking important. So he flees the country. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's why you don't do that for a fucking child rapist. What? What the fuck is going on? What is our justice? Hey, American justice system, what's your fucking deal? Oh my god. I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of like how he was able to avoid being arrested because it's not that interesting. Basically, he fucked off to England and he fucked off to France and the US has no jurisdiction. I mean, he did he did he did what Julian Assange yeah. did basically, which was Sanctuary. sexually assault somebody and then fucking just bounce to a place where where <sighs> in a 2003 interview Samantha said straight up what he, I I have conflicting reports on her last name it's either Gamer or Gailey straight up what he did to me was wrong but I wish he returned to America so the whole ordeal can be put to rest for both of us there's no statute of limitations governing the case because Polanski has already been charged and pled guilty so he has not set foot in, in the US since then as remained in England and France and was able to make movies including 2000 and like two's the pianist which was nominated for various awards somehow and then on september 26 2009 polanski was detained by swiss police in the zurich airport because of his outstanding warrant in the u.s on fort and then the united states was like hey can we can you send him here so we can charge him can we get that parcel from you 
The Swiss court rejected the U.S. request and released Polanski from custody. Oh, fucking Jesus God. Because Polanski fled the L.A. court before being sentenced, all six of the original charges are still pending against him. As they fucking should be, yeah. God. Most of France wants wants these charges dropped. England doesn't care. Poland does not want them dropped. Switzerland does not want them dropped. And the U.S. government doesn't want them dropped. F- part 7, the final part. Holly Weird. Since his arrest, Polanski has made films with Adrian Brody, Pierce Bronson, Ewan McGregor, to name a few. There was a petition in 2009 calling for his release. Fuck that. Fuck Would that. Would you like to know? Would you like to know four of the people who signed it? Yeah, sure. Woody Allen, not? Martin Scorsese, Darren Aronofsky, <sighs> David Lynch. I'm. Hey, guess what? David Lynch. God damn it, David. Hey, by the way, shocker. Absolutely shocking shock that Woody Allen, that yeah. Woolen Allen, Woody Allen would have signed this petition that says, "Hey, maybe let this like pedophile fucking rapist go free." Fuck me, <laughs> running for its 2003 Academy Award film for the pianist, Meryl Streep and multiple other actors gave a standing ovation for for its Oscar wins. Uh, what the fuck is the matter with people? The only actor who is against him is Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was governor at the time, and and said, I admire his work, but he committed a crime and should be punished, therefore. And Tom, and now we breathe. We gotta we gotta take a break so that Tom and I can fucking kill ourselves. Can just like but... breathe a little bit, and I know this is maybe an abrupt shift um, from the dark story that we did, but we're gonna hear from another show in the network that's not a total fucking bummer. Hey, I'm Liam and I'm Eric, and we host an anime podcast. Hold on, hold on. It's it's funny. I I don't like anime. And I do like anime. And we watch it, and we review it, and I well, try- Well, I review it, and then you derail everything. Yes. Uh, it's called the Shmanime Podcast. It's on the Major Cast Network every other Wednesday. Do we commit to that? When did that happen? Oh, fuck, it's Tuesday, isn't it? <laughs> every other Tuesday. <laughs> on the Major Cast Network, or iTunes, or wherever you get podcasts. Probably. Tom? oh god what a great ad that was hey before we get started with tom's story um i just want to say you know thank you guys for sticking with us i know that this was a lot but i i'm fascinated by the story specifically learning about it in the context of the first part Mm -hmm. and how remote and isolated these two incidents were yeah. So I apologize if I was a little all over the place and, and hard to follow, but there was like a lot of information that I was synthesizing and skipping over because yeah. I wrote a lot of stuff down just because I, I love Sharon Tate and I think she's yeah. tremendous. And with and with a situation like that, there's no there's no simple progression. It's an incredibly complicated series of events and it's a difficult thing to talk about. So anyways. Moving on. Moving on. Hey guys, it's time for my story. The story that's not a bummer. Chapter 1. Missionary style. 1549. Is this the earliest you've ever gone for one of your stories? I believe so. Missionary Francis Xavier travels to Japan. He's not actually super important, but what he brings with him is one of his crew members has a set of 48 Portuguese ombre playing cards and japan loves them 
They love them so much that they completely sweep the nation and become a popular method of gambling. Like not not just not just ombre playing cards, but just the notion of gambling playing in cards. card games. So Japan starts to craft their own card games, which explodes after 1633 when Japan closes off all contact with the Western world. So after 1633, they have their own market to work with, and so like, like specifically Japanese playing cards, fucking just blow the fuck up like it's the only thing in japan because all foreign because all foreign cards have been outlawed so they have their own market to focus on and the ensuing evolution of japanese card games follows a particular cycle namely that a game is created it is used for gambling and then it gets banned because of its association with gambling it's the circle of life and it moves us all oh i pulled that lyric out of my ass i had no idea if that was right and then, and then a new card game is created to circumvent the law because, like, hey, this new card game isn't technically illegal and is technically not used for gambling yet. And then rinse and repeat for the next eh, about 200 years, give or take. Eventually, in the mid to late 18th century, the government is just like, oh, guys, like, you keep doing this and we keep outlawing it and it keeps happening and we're just, we're just fucking sick and tired of it. We're just not into it. Listen to your parents. And so the government is throws its hands to the sky, throws them hands up, and says, fuck it, we're going to relax our standards on card game gambling. And they legalized the game Hanafuda in 1886. Uh, alternate title for this first chapter, Hanafuda of Barely Noah. <laughs> Tom, I want you to describe my face I'm giving you to the listeners. Oh, um, mm. Going to bring up that Skype full screen so I can just <laughs> suck up every little drop of sweat um a uh, uh, furrowed brow definitely face lowered a, a little bit of a, a a hint of disappointment but mostly just kind of resigned anger listen you knew what you were getting into when we started this podcast i actually i really didn't no, neither did i <laughs> so they thought that hanafuda was a good compromise as its cards lacked numbers and each game would extend for a long period of time, theoretically making it an unappealing gambling game. Of course, fucking, they were dead wrong. There's no such thing. Chapter two. Lord, I was born a gambling man. R.I.P. Greg Gallman. We miss you, bud. Uh, I think we should talk a little bit about who gambles, especially in that era and a little bit before. One of the lowest classes that emerges during the Edo period, 1603 to 1868, is the Bakuto, or gamblers. The Bakuto gained power through their gambling institutions patronized by the working class. This is where illegal card games lived and thrived, though the government was often on the cut. This is actually how the government would kind of screw over the working class. The Bakuto get a percentage of the workers' wages, which is given to the workers by the government, and then the government gets a percentage of the Bakuto's earnings from the gambling so the government was essentially allowing gambling so they could get back some of the money they were paying the workers hey guys guillotines use them do you think that (laughs) there will never be a cooler person than a legal card game gambler in edo japan just think about someone leaning back in a chair 
have a card going through their fingers. Other hand, like, slowly going towards a katana. I'll snatch the life right the fuck at ya. Regardless, this is how they manage to transcend the fringe nature of their class, and the fringe outlaw nature of their class, and become a prominent and powerful culture. Hey, Liam? Hey, Tom. These guys, in tandem with another Edo-era low class, the Tekia, peddlers, become the Yakuza. <gasps> the Yakuza. No way. Wait, are you serious? Yeah. So you're telling me that the the Japanese mafia was formed out of illegal card-playing gamblers, the coolest a person can be, and peddlers? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, the actual name Yakuza comes from the Bakuto. It's a combination of Ya, Ku, and Za, or 893, which is a losing hand in Oicho Kabu, which is a form of Baccarat. Oh, this is the coolest thing in the world. That fucking rules so goddamn hard. Like, hey, what are we going to call our criminal organization? We're going to base it off of a losing hand in a fucking card game. That would be like that would be oh, like if the Italian so mafia awesome. was like, hey, we're called the dead man's hand. It fucking owns bones. Like, I know they're the mafia, but fuck, that's cool. Yeah, it's rad as hell. Also, one of the, the syndicates, one of the Yas... Also... One of the Yakuza syndicates, the Aizukotetsu Kai, currently its fourth, currently its fourth largest syndicate, around eight. I'm just gonna, yeah, just take that one right from the top. And uh, it, it's and what's happening? Have the Yakuza gotten to us? Yeah, there's a man in the room with a gun. I was gonna say, if there's a person in the room, hold up two fingers. Oh Christ! And the Aizu, and the Aizuko. <laughs> Fuck! I'm gonna get this. I'm trying really hard to like try my best this to pronounce this. This is all right. staying in. Oh fuck me! It, I mean, it has to. Climb at this, point. this mountain. Okay. Climb this mountain. Hi, I'm Tom Lockney, and there ain't no mountain high enough. Actually, there is, because I, I, I died halfway up. Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't a river wide enough to keep me from getting to you, babe. The Aizukotetsu Kai is currently the fourth largest syndicate in the Yakuza, and in 1886, when Hanafuda was legalized, they control large parts of Kyoto. Oh, he nailed it! First try, swish. Buckets. Oh, buckets. buckets for days. And in 1889, Kyoto is where a man named Fusajiro Yamauchi chooses to open a new card manufacturing business. Wait, I know what this is now. Chapter 3 unintended when the meiji government legalizes hanafuda yamauchi is thrilled though he is not a member of the yakuza he is a former illicit card player this means two things one he defo brush shoulders with the yakuza like for fucking yeah. sure and two he could now freely indulge in his chosen pastime but he yeah yeah this this dude's not content to simply win hands. No, 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 no. Yamauchi is an entrepreneur. Hells yeah, he is. So in 1889, he establishes a company dedicated to the handmade creation of Hanafuda cards. This company is called Liam Nintendo. Nintendo. You know it. You fucking know the name. Recognize. 
It took a while to establish the business, but soon Nintendo became a popular retailer for the Yakuza. Many even claim that the name is a tacit reference to gambling, though no one knows for sure. People think that the the translation is something along the lines of like, leave your luck to the heavens or something like that. But much like Yakuza, it's a, a combination of several words. It might be a Nintendo. Ten might be a reference to Tengu, a mythical being associated with gambling. And awesome. Nin may be a play on Ninkyo Dantai or chivalrous organizations, which is the Yakuza's self-assigned moniker. Again, not confirmed. Like the the only guy who knows the the meaning behind the name is Yamauchi, and yeah, dude, he wicked dead. For nearly a full century, the production and sale of Hanafuda gambling cards was Nintendo's primary revenue stream. Even in the 1960s, new hire Gunpei Yokoi. Mm. Oh, God. One of gaming's rock stars. Pours him out for one's dead homies. R.I.P. Gunpei. He had interactions with the Yakuza. It was his job. His One of his first jobs as, at Nintendo was to check the Hanafuda machines and make sure they weren't faulty. Because if you produce like a faulty card, you know people can cheat with that and it can fuck up a game. And people can lose money that way. And yo, when a fucking criminal organization loses money and it's your fault, bad, that's a fucking so problem. Many bad things happen. It's such a big problem. If the machines ever produced bum cards, Yokoi recalled, quote, people from the local mafia would often come to Nintendo very angry. It's a me, Mario. My legs are broken. Anyways, after all this sort of uh, illicit production. In the, in the 70s and 80s, Nintendo shifted business towards the electronic market and underwent a rebranding. No longer do they cater to adults and organized criminals, though they do still produce Hanafuda cards, recently creating a Mario set. It's a me, Donkey Kong. Hanafuda is no longer associated with gambling, and neither is Nintendo. And that is my story for the week. And now... In the middle of Trigger City, there is an intersection between the streets, self-care. Oh, and Corner Lane. Yeah. And we like to hang out on the corner of self-care and self-care Avenue and Corner Lane uh, for our final segment where we try to balance out some of the bummer stuff that we occasionally talk about with like just like a nice thing that happened in our day, our week, our life. I'm going to go first this week. Go for it. So today... I got business cards. And that's actually not the self-care corner. Although, although these are some very cool business cards. They're pretty dope. I like them a lot. But I got them through Staples, and there's a Staples within walking distance of my house. So I just decided to walk there today and walk back because, you know, it's always good to go on a walk. It's healthy. Go outside. Get some sun. Vitamin D. And yes, on the way back, there was all this traffic. And so I kind of ended up, like, walking alongside this one car for a very long time. And there was this, like, there was this kid in the car in the back seat who was, like, kind of bored and looking at the window. And and we, uh, like, kind of walked alongside each other for a very long time. And then I got ahead of her. And and then I was waiting at this intersection to cross. And this, this car was, like, turning left or something. Uh, and so I was waiting to cross. And then the car pulled up as I was kind of just like pacing and I look over and this kid in the back seat looks at me 
and waves to me and it's like what's up we were walking aside each other this whole time and i waved back and it was just like a very nice fun pleasant interaction and that is my self-care corner for this week so my self-care corner i'm dog walking for a friend of mine and he lives in this neighborhood in Brooklyn. And when I first started, he warned me that, like, there are stray feral cats around the neighborhood. And I, was, <gasps> I, I hadn't seen him at all. That's so like, awesome. Feral cats are the nicest. I hadn't seen him at all and uh, just didn't really think anything of it. But then today I walk to the back of their house to go in. And there was three of them Aww. just, like, hanging out there. And they ran away. But I saw them again when I was walking the dog. But I had to make them run away again because the dog's just a puppy and they will attack him. They are not nice. Oh. But I saw feral cats while walking a cute puppy and protected the puppy and then hung out with the puppy. And I've been hanging out with the puppy. I think maybe cats just like me because I've never had a bad interaction with a feral cat. And you look like a cat. Yeah. we. I mean, like, usually when a cat, like a feral cat shows up, either it just, like, runs away or whatever. Or we just, like, hang out and chill for a little bit and we, like, play around and then we part ways. And cats are, oh, man. Cats are just, I I like cats. I also like dogs. I, I'm not a dog or a cat person. I'm both. Anyways, this yeah, this is the Media Majors cast. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Media Majors cast. You can follow on Facebook our podcast network, the Major Casts Network. You should check out the other shows on the network. You've heard ads for it. You should yeah. subscribe to us on iTunes. Also, you have a podcast app on your phone. If you like us, you should subscribe on it and leave us a review on iTunes. If you do, you'll be on shout out section yep doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be a, like a, a goddamn like review essay just leave like a sentence on itunes saying hey like your cast y'all seem like good boys and i'll say this just because uh i want to definitely check out all the shows on major cast but specifically check out big time whoopsie yeah uh, holy I think shit it's a really good podcast yeah it's it's so fucking okay y'all big time whoopsies is like media majors but it's just like a podcast about like history incompetence on a grand scale holy fucking shit yeah. it's so goddamn good and y'all should check it out it's 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 really great and i want to i want eric to make more it's yeah it's hosted by our friend eric mcadams and it's it's like a fucking fantastic show Really, spotlight on on big time whoopsie. Yeah. So. Also, obviously, check out Shmanime and Musty TV. Yeah, fuck that show. Fuck <laughs> fuck those shows. Watch big time whoopsie. Listen to big time whoopsie. Absolutely. Anyways, thank you for listening to another episode of Media Majors. Sorry, it got dark. Hey, you know what? It it yeah, it happens sometimes in the show. It's part of the mediums we're part of, and we're not gonna. We don't want to shy away from the. We don't want to whitewash our industry. So it's you know it's part of the it's part of the gosh darn thing, and and we're gonna talk about we, it. We want to tell we want to tell these stories as best we can. Yeah. And also, we'll be there for you. Oh God, that was creepy. Yeah, that was awful. Oh God, we'll be there for you. Thanks for listening to the Major Casts Network. Stay fun, stay nasty, and stay major.